right, are we all there and settled? All right, the book of 1 Corinthians, that's where we are today. And we're going to cover three verses today. First three verses of 1 Corinthians, and I'm excited to start this time with you. And so here's how we're going to begin. Um, I do have some information to give you that is introductory information to the book of 1 Corinthians, not only book of 1 Corinthians, but also things regarding the context, the historical context of the city and the people that we're looking at together. Now, if people wanted to do a study of a letter that Jimmy wrote to Fellowship Renewed Church, right, 2023, wouldn't it be helpful to know uh, what, where Sparta, Tennessee is and about it if you had nothing that you were removed from it? You want to know about that culture. You want to know about the people because being informed about the place and the people helps us to understand the words that are being said. Wouldn't you all agree? And so what we're going to spend a little bit of our time here at the beginning doing is gaining some context in several different ways. And the first thing we're going to gain context about is the city. About the city. What is the city? Corinth. Ancient Corinth is the city. And so we're going to follow uh, several different things. I will tell you, I do have lots of slides for you today. Um, the reason being is because there is some information today that I don't want you to just hear. I want you to hear it. I want you to see it. And I want you to hopefully be immersed in the context of what we're looking at together. And so what you see on the screen is simply an aid to help us gain context. Context is very important because there is no text without a context. That is both true uh, in the literature, but also historically. And so we want to gain context, okay? You with me? I'm excited. Does anybody, I don't know if you're already kind of like, oh, this service has been long already, and we just started. I, I don't know. I'm excited. I'd like for you to be excited. Hey, we're starting something new, and guess what comes with a new book? Oh. <laughs> a new map. And how are we not excited about a new map? I made a new map, and I mean, it's just, I, I have to calm down, take a breath. I mean, I, I'm so excited Okay, get excited with me here, people. First Corinthians, how can we not be excited? All right, about the city, let's start here. Let's, a little bit of uh, timeline. Uh, I will read this uh, for you. Also, let me tell you this. If you're saying, oh, I can't read the screen or whatever, remember that in the app now, every single slide that you see is also going to be visible to you on the app, okay? Under sermon notes. There they all are, okay? Every single one of them, okay? Now, you might say, well, I'm looking at it and they're not there yet. True, I blame Danny, Okay? I bl <laughs> not, not really, uh, but, but anyway, I, uh, uh, I, I have yet to upload all of those, and I didn't communicate that to Danny, so we'll blame Danny, okay? So uh, the Corinth timeline, in 146 BC, um, Greek Corinth was destroyed, and so what does that automatically tell us? Is that there was a city in ancient Corinth, which I'll show you where that is here soon, but in 146 BC, it was destroyed. It's, which means it's a very old city, right? And uh, we're going to be somewhere around the 800 BC ballpark, okay? Uh, 600 BC was kind of its prime. It was a very Greek city, very Greek. It's probably in Greece somewhere, right? It was a very Greek city, but there was a big change that happened because in 44 BC, it was reestablished not as a Greek city, but as a Roman city. And who else did that happen to? 
Philippi, which we just recently looked at as we went through the book of Philippians together, that also happened to them, right? Is that it was founded as a Roman city. So everything about it is very Roman. Now it has a Greek past, but a new Roman identity. And these things kind of merge together. And we're going to see how that plays out. And it's in this book. And if you didn't know that, some of these things would be very confusing. So you have an old Greek history merging with a new Roman identity. And uh, actually, what they also did, is, as, as we also learned in the book of Philippians, is that when Rome establishes a new city, what do they also do? They take some of their, old, their own people and they put them in that city on purpose to make sure it's Roman, right? So you take some of your retired soldiers and leaders and things like that, and you put them in this new city and say, make sure it's really, really Roman. And make sure they worship the emperor, by the way. Okay, so that's what's happening here in Corinth, but that happened when? 44 B.C. Those letters are important. Okay, so uh, the population of Corinth at this time, really ultimately, as you should know, no one knows the answer to that, but there's an estimate, right? Between 80 and 200,000 people. That's a, I know that's a big gap. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about it, okay? But, but it was somewhere, let's just say 125,000 people, I think, gets us in the good ballpark, Okay. 125,000 people. Is that a lot of people? Yeah, I mean, that's a good amount of people, isn't it? Um, a lot going on. So here, here we go. All right. It's map time. Here's our map. We got the boot, and the boot is? It'll, good, see? I don't even need to show you the map. You know everything. All right, Corinth. So here's Corinth, yellow star. There's Italy, Greece, Asia Minor, and there's Corinth right down there at the bottom. Um, here is Corinth with some notable cities to help us get context. If you can read it, I'll help you. Over here in Asia Minor is Ephesus. We've been looking at Ephesus somewhat recently. That's why I put it there. And there is Athens. We all know Athens. There it is very, very close to Corinth. Would that influence this church in Corinth? Does having a prominent city such as Athens, Greece, next to you influence your city? Absolutely, yes, it does. Do we even experience here? Now, some of you live in Cookville. You say, well, I don't know. All right, right. But even in Sparta, do you know that we experience the effects of Cookville here in Sparta? Right? And th if that is true here, how much more in this circumstance? Okay? So th then I also put, what is right below Corinth, by the way? Sparta. Who knew? <laughs> that is truly where Sparta is located in Greece, ancient Sparta. And, uh, yeah, they had a little bit of a rivalry with, with uh, Corinth, actually. So, uh, but anyway, that is where Sparta got its name. It's from Sparta in Greece. Anyway, I thought you'd enjoy that. And there's Rome way over there. Okay? Uh, next, a good thing to keep in mind, because as we read our text, it's going to mention these names, which are regions. And what we see here is Asia, over here in the blue, Thracia, or Thrace, in the yellow, Macedonia, in the pink there, and then Achaia in orange. And where is Corinth located in the region of? Achaia. And there it is down at the bottom. So when you read that in your text, know that it's referencing regions and not specific cities. Okay? Got it? All right. Next. So we're going to zoom in. And there's Corinth. This is so very important to understanding the context of this city. I want you to see it. Here is Corinth. We have zoomed in on Corinth. And here's something that was happening. There was trade from Asia, which is over here, and Italy, which is over there. So Rome and all of Asia Minor. And what is in between is Corinth, 
okay? In Athens, that's all true, but there was something specific happening here that made Corinth the city that it is, which made the people who they are. I'm telling you, this is a big deal for context of understanding these people. Is this right here, the next slide. This is what happened. Instead of going all the way around, they decided to cut into the middle. But now, there is a three and a half mile land bridge here that they had to actually travel because it wasn't connected with water. So what they would do is they would actually, they would do several things. People don't really know, actually. Uh, but anyway, what they would do is they would come from Italy, for example, and stop here at Lacayam, which is a small city. And then they would transport all their goods or their ship itself. They would put it on tracks. They actually found tracks in the ground, carved in the ground, where they could take their whole ship, set it on some kind of wheels, and all these guys would pull it this three or so mile journey all the way, and then they'd put it back in the, in the sea here. That's, that's, that's pretty impressive, actually, isn't it? But that's what they would do. But who controlled all of this? Corinth. So you have this money coming in and money going out. Who's making all that money? Who's meeting all these people? Who's getting the best of all the trade from both places? Corinth. So where did people want to live? In Corinth. So what you have in Corinth is people from all over the known Roman world living in Corinth, which means you have all the religions of the known Roman world living in Corinth. It's all alive and well in Corinth, and that's where this church is located. Now, is that significant? I think it is very significant. Okay, so uh, I just have a, a quote here, and this is from uh, Strabo, who was a Roman geographer, and this is what he had to say. Now, he was living between 63 B.C. and 24 A.D., and uh, this is what he has to say. Corinth is said to be opulent. I don't use that word, uh, opulent, but what it means is rich and luxurious. Corinth is a rich and luxurious place from its mart, from the things that it sells, from its marketplace. And it is situated on the isthmus. It commands two harbors. We already learned about that, didn't we? Uh, one on, uh, near Italy, one near Asia, and it facilitates by reason of so short a distance an exchange of commodities on each side. So this is very true information. This is what was happening in Corinth. They controlled both sides and the, both harbors here. And Sencria, by the way, which we saw, uh, you should know because that's mentioned uh, in Scripture as well. Okay? Okay, so far? We're just gaining some geographical context for the most part. Uh, geopolitical context, kind of, right? All right, next, we're going to look at the church. Is that good enough for the city? Somewhat ballpark context of the city? Uh, we're going to look at the church now, and again, we have a timeline. And the timeline, we had 146, Greek Corinth, 44 B.C., Roman Corinth. Now, when was Paul in Corinth? Paul was in Corinth between AD 50 and AD 51, and he spent a year and a half there. During his travels, he spent a year and a half there, Okay. Um, actually, I think I have a map of that as well, don't I? All kinds of maps. Yeah. So we have Ephesus over here in Asia Minor. And Paul was over here in this region where that starts. And he goes to Troas, to Philippi. That's when he established the church in Philippi. And then he came to Thessalonica, Berea. You remember Berea? They're the ones that examined closely everything Paul had to say to see if they were true. And then he came down to Athens. And right after Athens, he went to Corinth. And that's where he stayed for a year and a half. Okay. So this is during Paul's second missionary journey. And that is given to us over in Acts 16. If you want to go read about that, you can read about that in Acts 16. But where I'd like to take you first, before we look at our three verses, I want to take you to Acts chapter 18, 
because in Acts chapter 18 is where you have the founding of the church in Corinth. And it's not too many verses, so I just like to read it because it helps us again gain context for the founding of this church. That's Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. I heard you. Yeah, I was scared. I thought you were telling me to be quiet. Okay, you all there? Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. It's exciting, isn't it? I'm so excited. So new. All right, here it is. After this, Paul left Athens. Oh, we know that. And he went to where? To Corinth. And he found a Jew there named Aquila and a native of Pontus. So many cities and places and names and things, right? And we can easily get lost. Paul was in Athens during his second missionary journey. We saw that map. Then he went over to Corinth, which was not too far away. And he met there a Jew named Aquila, who was a native of Pontus. Where was Pontus? I didn't see that on our map. That's true. That was over in Asia Minor, actually a little bit off of our map. So he's from quite a ways away, this guy Aquila, and his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay? So they were from an area in Asia, but they were living in Rome, Italy. And then the emperor there said, all you Jews got to leave. And so they left, and did they go all the way back home? No, they didn't go all the way back home. They went to Corinth. Why Corinth? Because that was where all the ships were going, right? So if you're going to leave Rome and you're going to get on a ship, where are all the ships going? To Corinth. So they got on a ship, and they got off the boat, and they were just living there. That all kind of makes sense. And so while Paul was there, he was also a traveler, and he met this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And, uh, and he went to see them. And why did, why did Paul go to see them? Because he was of the same trade as them, and he worked. And uh, they were tent makers by trade. So if you didn't know it, now you know it. Paul had a trade. He had a skill, a labor that he did to make money. And what was that? He's a tent maker. And what would that mean exactly? You know, for us, that's a very different situation. You know, you work on an assembly line or something, right? Uh, not true for Paul. It most likely means that he was a worker of leather. It's probably what it meant for Paul. Okay, so Paul, yes, he had a skill. He had a trade. Okay, uh, and he stayed. They were tent makers. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So as he did this, as he tried to, as he got into the city, he went to the synagogue. What does that tell us? Well, if you remember from Philippians, was there a synagogue in Philippi? Answer is no. Why? Because there wasn't a big enough Jewish population in Philippi. So because there is a synagogue in Corinth, it means that there is a pretty large Jewish population in Corinth in order to have a synagogue. So they had a synagogue, he went into the synagogue, and he was reasoning with the Jews, trying to persuade them to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah they've been waiting on, and that's great. How did that go? Um, it didn't go very well. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent, and so from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And that's what he did. So beginning in verse 7. He left there. He went to the house of a man named Titus Justus. He was a worshiper of God. He lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed, and they were baptized. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, 
for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Stop right there. So how long did he spend there in Corinth? A year and a half. That's how we know that, okay? So Paul comes in. He goes to the synagogue. He's attempting to persuade the Jews. It wasn't well received. And then now he begins going to the Gentiles and proclaiming the Christ among them. But does it mean that none of the Jews were converted? No, actually the leader of the synagogue was converted but it doesn't mean the masses were. So the masses of Jews there in Corinth were not converted, but some were, okay? So what does that tell us about reading 1 Corinthians? What that tells us is when we read, we read through the lens of some of the church were, were Jewish, but most of them were Gentiles. That's what it tells us. Does that help us in reading 1 Corinthians? Some of them were Jewish, but most of them were Gentiles. I think that helps us greatly, immensely in reading 1 Corinthians. Okay, so he stayed and he taught them the word for a year and six months, but not all went so good the whole time. Beginning in verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and they brought him before the tribunal. And so, yes, if you're wondering, I have a map for you of where the tribunal was located. Okay, so here it is. So this might be difficult to see. I understand. So that I put it in colors. This is a reconstruction of the city of Corinth from the footprint that is there today. There are the Temple of Apollo is still somewhat still standing. Um, some of that stuff later on to come. But right now, this is a kind of a blueprint of the structures that were there. All the yellow that you see, by the way, even though you can't make out a lot, what you can see is all that yellow. Those are all temples. None of them to the God of the Jews, okay? Um, so what we have over here then in pink, do you see that area in pink, that open area and that stretch? That is the Bema seat. That is the tribunal. This is where they took Paul. And it's still there today. Now, of course, in, in ruins, but much of it is still there. So they took Paul down this little road right here and they took him right there in this public space with many people around him and they brought judgment upon him that's where they took him you can go visit that today if you like okay so they brought him before the tribunal and they said this man is speaking to persuade the people uh to worship god contrary to the law and of course they're all bent out of shape about it they wanted the roman leaders to do something about paul because he was hurting their religion but when paul was about to open his mouth and defend himself Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a, member of, or a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal. And so then they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. And they beat him in front of the tribunal. So the Roman leader said, you, you guys and all your crazy stuff, I'm not having anything to do with that. Get out of here. So what they did is they grabbed the synagogue leader and they took him out in front of this public space and they beat him publicly. His name was Sosthenes. Remember that name. He was the leader of the synagogue. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this stuff. Okay? That's about the founding of the church. That's how it all began. That's who this is written to, okay? 
So let's talk about the letter now and get into our verses for the day. So that's why we're only doing three verses, right? Okay. About the letter now, verses one through three. Let's look at it. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A great opening to the letter. Would you agree? What did you notice immediately? Sosthenes. Who is that? That's the guy. Now, some would say, oh, we don't know that that's the same Sosthenes because that was a common name. Listen, I'm telling you, this is, I'm, I'm going to give a, an opinion here, okay? Uh, I believe it's a very well-informed opinion. Paul does not qualify this Sosthenes, and he mentions him specifically. Why? Because they all knew him. And how would they all know him unless he was a public figure, like the leader of the synagogue? That's why he's mentioned here. And they say, he's saying, you remember when they took Sosthenes out in public and they beat him because of my ministry? Well, now Sosthenes is joining me in saying all these things to you. He is right here along with me saying that all these things are true. That's a pretty big testimony right there, isn't it? I think it is. Let's just look at another timeline here so that we, we make sure that we're all on the same page. Have all of our timeline coming here. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth from 50 to 51. And when did he write this letter to them? Because he didn't write the letter while he was living with them, right? He spent a year and a half and then he kept on his travels. So when did he write this letter? About 54 to 55 AD. And then 2 Corinthians follows very soon after. Okay? So how long has it been? Just a couple of years. And things for the Corinthian church have kind of fallen apart in just a couple of years. Tell me, just pause for a second. Knowing what we know now, can you begin to see how this letter, already, we're barely into it, has an incredible amount of information to give a church? I hope you see it. Have you ever been part of a church that three years went by and there was not a single problem? All is good. You don't, we don't need anything. All is good around here. No problems. Everyone is living perfectly unified, peaceful, graceful lives in Christ Jesus, submitting to one another, loving one another. Is that the context that we know? Or does every church have its problems? You know that Corinth had its own problems. And Paul heard about these problems. So whenever you're looking at a book of the Bible, and we're going to get into some application here very, very soon. Uh, it's coming here in just a second. I just want to give you just a little bit more information. The, the, uh, whenever you're looking at a book and you're studying a book of the Bible, you want to ask a few basic questions. Okay? First of all, who's the author? Who wrote this? Paul, the Apostle Paul. Second, when was it written? That helps for context, 54 to 55. Another thing you want to ask is who's the audience? That is, who was it written to? Well, our text tells us, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, there's more to this than meets the eye, okay? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So specifically, it is to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to who? Those sanctified, those called to be saints. Here is a big distinction, okay? It is between the universal church and the local church, first of all. Because this specifically says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. Do you see two things happening there? There's an address to a specific local church, and then there is also the acknowledgement of a universal church that exists. The local church is an expression of the universal church of Christ. To keep that in mind is very important for us. Are we the only church that there is? No. But is this your local church? Yes. And with that comes local church accountability and structure as Paul was seeking to establish everywhere he went. So what that means is there was a congregation in Corinth. They had their own elders over them. And they were accountable to those elders, and the elders were to teach and shepherd the church, and there were to be servants within that church structure. He wrote this letter to the church that is in Corinth, which means it was a particular group of people and not another group of people. Do you understand what I'm saying? You write this to a particular local church, it doesn't mean you and everybody else. What it means is you. I'm writing to you, your church. And what church is that? The church is the people. The church is not the organization. I don't, I, don't even, I don't even know how we've got that changed in our mind somehow, but it's like the church is not a thing in itself, right? The church is the people. So when he wrote this letter to the church, who did he write it to? The people that made up that church. If a letter was written to Fellowship Renewed Church, who was it written to? Us. But if it was in the mailbox, who would you hand the envelope to? Probably one of the elders. Why? Because they are the means of communication to the rest of the church, and who are they going to communicate that to? To the people they know belong there, right? Because we compose a particular body and not another. But just as true, there is also a universal church. Who composes the universal church? All believers. doesn't matter whether you're here or not. You are a believer, so you belong to the church. And everyone who belongs to the church ought to belong to a local church. Okay? That is the system set up for us in the New Testament. Every universal church member, by faith, must belong to a local church. That is how Paul established it. That is understood and assumed in the New Testament context. Okay? So there is another distinction here. Well, let me say this. So there are fundamental gospel truths here. There are fundamental gospel principles that are timeless and they apply to the universal church. But each local church has its own unique issues. And what that tells us is there is no perfect church. I know I'm blowing your mind right now. (laughs) Telling you that there is no perfect church. I don't know if you've been here for years or this is the first time you've been here. I'm going to tell you plainly, just so we all know. FRC is not perfect. Maybe I'll say it again. FRC is not perfect. We have issues, as does every church. That is absolutely true. So, uh, we are not perfect. The church in Corinth was not perfect, but how does he address them yet? The church in Corinth, sanctified and called to be saints. Right? Right? imperfect as they were, 
He expected change, though, and that's why he wrote to them, that they might be further sanctified. Do we desire as a church, imperfect as we are, to be further sanctified? And we are looking at this letter in order that we might hear Paul's instruction. And while some of these things were specific to their time and place, the principles remain that we then take with us because God's word is applicable not only to a church in real time and space, but also to the church universal. Understand that? So here we are together. But there is another distinction, and that is between the visible church and the invisible church. This, this is really important. I hope that in your groups this week, this is a point of conversation because listen to what's happened here. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, are those the same? I want you to look with me. Well, I can just read it for you, but this is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19. Just listen. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, okay, he just called that gathering a church. I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you. What? In order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. So there is a distinction. Just because you gather as the church does not mean you are part of the church. That is the distinction between the visible and invisible church. If you've never heard these terms before, what this means is there is a visible gathering. I see you, you see me, right? This is the visible church gathered. The invisible church is that church, the people who are truly called and sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. That is the true church. So there was happening here that the church gathered corporately and we all saw each other, but he said there are divisions among you because some of you truly belong and others of you do not. That's what Paul said about the gathered church, okay? So there could be a sense of false confidence that if you walk in the doors and you are part of the visible gathering, you think by default you belong to the true church of God. Could that possibly happen? I think it happens a lot. But we need to see past that. But we need to see it, right? We need to recognize it, but we need to see through that and past that. That Paul was calling this gathered assembly a church, but he said, but there are going to be divisions among you. In fact, there must be in order to decide who among you is genuinely part of the church. So therein lies our distinction between visible church and invisible church. We all understand those terms. It's, those are helpful terms to understand what Paul is addressing here. So who is he writing to? Those who are the true church of God. Why is he writing to them? Are the others going to even be able to hear it and see it? Because they don't have ears to hear it and they don't have eyes to see it. Do we want to be those people who have ears to hear and eyes to see? Yes, we do. So um, a little bit here. I, I am on the last section of my notes, okay? I don't know if that actually means anything, but... Uh, how did Paul get this information? So the question we're actually asking here, this final, this final thing is, what is the occasion of writing? In other words, why did he decide now to write a letter and not before and not after? Well, like he did decide after, but why is he now writing a letter? What is the occasion of, why is he writing a letter to them? Why does he need to do that? Well, there are three sources of information that he has received, and it doesn't sound good, so he needs to write to them because he's not physically present. 
there were uh, sources of information. The first source of information was a letter from the church itself. The church wrote a letter to Paul, and we see that in chapter 7, verse 1, and it's referenced over and over again to the end of the book. So the church in Corinth wrote to Paul saying, hey, we have questions about who we are as the people of God and how we are to conduct ourselves individually and corporately. And there are some issues that have popped up, for example, like head coverings and meat sacrifice to idols and speaking in tongues and all these kind of things. And we're confused and we need your help, Paul. That's one reason he's writing. Second reason he's writing is because he had a report brought to him from Chloe's people. Uh, We don't know who Chloe's people are, right? Uh, But we know that there were some people who are Chloe's people, and they brought a report of the church to Paul, and it wasn't good. And so he said, and I'm writing to you because of what I've heard about you. People have been saying things about you, and I'm concerned. So that's another reason this letter was written. And there's a third reason. Over in chapter 16, we read that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, three guys, um, all also brought a report about the church. And all of these things collectively made Paul say, I need to write them a letter. And here we find uh, a very long letter written to the church in Corinth. If you look at your Bible and you notice how far it goes all the way through chapter 16, as far as words are concerned, it's, 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 it's the longest letter, right? 16 chapters. That's a long letter. He had lots of things to address. And so generally, what do we say? What is 1 Corinthians about? It's about a bunch of stuff. Because there were reports brought to him. There were things they were concerned with. All this stuff. Now he's writing to them to help them. Um, So we'll say generally then, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to address multiple issues of personal and corporate conduct, many of those stemming from cultural and religious influences. They were in the midst of their culture. They had religious questions. They had cultural questions because the culture was, was falling in, caving in around them. Do you feel the culture, the culture caving in around you? This was happening for them too. And they had questions about how do we act? How do we behave together individually? How, what do we believe about this? Are we to do that? Is it okay to do that? Is it okay to do this? And so Paul was answering all these questions. That makes sense? Let's look at our final Uh, section of this verse, and we're going to end with some some application here. He says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, what did Paul want most for this church? It's said right away, right, right as we get started. He wanted the grace of God to be present and peace to be present in and around this congregation. Grace and peace. I'm just going to, let me, let me ask you a question. I want you to really think about it. I've given you tons of information today, okay? Acknowledged. What is it that you most desperately want from your church, your church family? If it is not grace and peace, I don't know what else we could be asking for. Grace and peace. Because... Grace and peace belong to the church only. Do you know that? And if grace and peace only belong to us, that is the world outside, the world of darkness, the world of sin does not know grace and peace. Do you know that? They don't know that world. But we do. We have been given grace. 
we have been given peace. And because we alone possess grace and peace, the church should be a continual expression of the grace and peace we have received. A church without grace is a church without peace. Have you ever experienced that? If there had only been grace given here, we would have had a peaceful resolution to this situation. If only there had been grace. And why should we be a graceful people? Why should you allow me grace during this introduction to 1 Corinthians to share with you a bunch of information? Hmm? When you got things to do, hey, it's Father's Day. Grace and peace should be among us. Why should I extend grace to you when you falter and when you fail and when you become irritated, frustrated, impatient with me? Why should I give you grace? Why? Because grace was given to me, not by you, but by God. God has always given me grace. In Jesus Christ, I have been given much grace. And I have peace with God. And I desire to have peace with his people. Do you? How are we to get that? by being a people full of grace. We must be a people full of grace. I think there is much to discuss about being a people of grace. So, what I'm suggesting to you this week as our first time of meeting in groups, which this applies to the vast majority, I am asking that you spend your time discussing much about this matter. When have you not been a person of grace and peace in the church? What can we all do to be a people of grace and peace within the church? And what would, that ha- what would happen in that environment if we were to be those people? Now, grace does not mean, oh, we're just, well, he's teaching heresy, but we're going to just have grace on him, you know. Uh, we need to understand it all in context, don't we? True grace and true peace means that although we are imperfect, yet we have grace. Isn't that how you want to be treated? When you mess up, Do you expect the church to be gracious to you or not? Do you want grace? Do you give grace? We should. This is what Paul ultimately wanted for the people. The grace and peace that you have received from God, so live it among yourselves, the grace and peace of God. This is what we desire for our church, isn't it? The grace and peace of God. So there we have our introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians. I hope you have lots to think about. I hope you have lots of new information that you find exciting, especially the maps, uh, as I did. Bringing all this into context helps us so much. Because remember, this is not a standalone situation, is it? Where are we going to be next week? 1 Corinthians, where are we going to be the week after that? 1 Corinthians, where are we going to be? Okay, I know, I'll stop. But we're going to be here for a while. And God has much to tell us in his word, and I'm excited. I want to be a person of grace and peace among you and among this church, and I desire the same for you, that when I mess up, I want a church of grace. Do you? Am I going to mess up? Better not put me on a pedestal, guys. Uh, I'm going to fall off real quick, okay? We all need grace and peace. This is where I want your hearts and your minds to be, even if you were bogged down with all the information today, okay? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord.
We thank you so much for the grace and peace that you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ. It is ours. We have peace with God, and it is only by means of Jesus Christ. We alone possess this grace and peace, and we ought to be a people who express this grace and peace. But oftentimes, because we fail, because we are yet sinners and not perfect, Lord, we are not as gracious as we should be. We do not have the peace within us or outside of us within our relationships that we should have. But I pray by your spirit and by your word as we invest our time here together as a church that you would shape us, that you would mold us, that you would make us a people full of grace and peace all to your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what we desire. We want to be this people. So help us by your spirit. And as we go through this journey, and as there is much to learn and, and many things to divulge and, and uh, experience together in a road that sometimes has ups and downs, I pray, let us be a people of grace with one another. Let us seek for unity together and not division. This is what we desire. By your spirit, let us accomplish these things to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.